The following conversation is with Dr. John Mummy. John has earned his PhD at Columbia University in chemistry. And the bulk of his career, he taught chemistry at Peninsula High School here in Gig Harbor, Washington. One of the things you will appreciate about John is his commitment to his family, his faith, but also the commitment to serve a community such as Gig Harbor. John has been battling Parkinson's disease for several years. And what you'll find is that even though it has impacted his life, it hasn't dampened his spirit or his sense of humor. John is one of my best friends. I think you'll find him to be an inspirational person battling a horrific disease. If you know someone who's dealing with Parkinson's disease, please send them a link to this podcast. I believe they'll find John to be inspirational. So without further ado, here's my good friend, John Maumain. Like the last three or four days, the mornings have been chilly. And then I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. Is it going to warm up? And it really didn't. But today you can tell it's warming up. I believe the next few days is going to be amazing. I heard Tuesday is going to be 90 degrees. The uh, cool in the morning, sunny in the afternoon is what I remember as a kid. We'd go out to the berry fields, which I think I mentioned earlier, and uh, it'd be cloudy and gray and so forth. And then about 11 o'clock, the sun would come out. And it'd so, be warm all the afternoon. So how old, how old were you when you were working in the berry fields? We, let's see, we were... Well, I guess I was around 13 or 14 at the time. Yeah, yeah, somewhere around there. And so was it pretty common for local kids to be working berry fields? Well, they had a bus that you could ride as well. They went to, they went to some places. We, we, we didn't take the bus because somebody had the car. <laughs> Who was it? And, you know, we, he didn't run to ride a stupid bus. But, uh, um, yeah, that was, that was, was about the only summer employment there was. Was that in the Puyallup Valley? Yeah, in the Puyallup, yeah. Because when you think about the Puyallup Valley now, there's, there's still fields, but yeah. it's not, kids don't work them. No. Wow. No, excuse me. <clears throat> so when you were a, a kid, of course, later in life, you ended up getting tested to become a member of Mensa. And Mensa is like 150 IQ. Right. So when you were a little kid, did you kind of know that you might have, you might be smarter than other kids, or, or how did that kind of how did that play into effect of growing up, actually having a genius IQ? <laughs> I didn't think that I was, you know, smarter than the other kids. Although there was one thing where I yeah, I thought I was brilliant. We used to have to go to the board and and <laughs> read off a, a set of numbers, and we had to write them on the board and then add them up. And I, we, I won every time. And the reason I won every time is because as I as I was adding up the numbers, I was adding the ones column in my head. So when I finished writing the numbers, I wrote the ones column answer on the bottom, and then, then had to answer the tens column. And I don't think anybody else ever did that. I thought it was so smart. Your recall. You know, throughout, you know, uh, working with you as a colleague, your recall of people and events and, you know, scientific ideas was just, like, amazing. I wondered, your recall, is that something you've always noticed as a kid, your recall of numbers and patterns? Well, I was fairly quick at memorizing things, particularly music. I mean, I would learn songs in a hurry so that I could play them. I, went, I made it to the Old Northwest Band. We learned the music. And we were practicing one one day, and uh, well, I guess the one time we had practiced, 
And all of a sudden, the director stopped everybody and said, pointed at me and said, you, yes, sir. <laughs> you're, you're not looking, you're looking at me. And I said, yes. Why are you doing that? He says, well, I thought I always should. And he said, yes. And the rest of you should do the same thing. And you're not looking at me. And I thought, wow. And so then everybody else was kind of looking at me like, what's that guy doing making, showing us up? But uh, it was easy to learn the music. And I could memorize it quickly. I can still remember the bass part, most of the bass part for Stars and Stripes Forever by Sousa. Da, 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 da. Boom, boom, boom. Of course, it was normally pretty easy. We didn't have the, the basses didn't have that much, many notes to play. But uh, So you played bass? I was the playing the sousaphone with a big oh. round bell. Oh. And I think the teacher who, who got me started, he first of all put me on the string bass because I was tall enough. And then when he moved me over just to the sousaphone, it was probably also because I was big enough to, to lift a silly thing. So I, I how never, old were you when you first played an instrument? Uh, uh, let's see, that was the eighth grade, seventh grade, seventh grade, yeah, at Parkland Elementary School. Uh, Bob Winters was the band director. So Parkland Elementary School, was that, was that K-8? It was K-6, and then they started, the district kept growing. But they didn't have room at the upper level, so they kept us at Parkland longer. <laughs> and then in eighth grade, they moved us up to Franklin Pierce High School to a section that was separate from the high school. So uh, you know, they had the separate buildings, and so we were at, at Franklin Pierce as eighth graders, but not part of the high school. So this is funny because I mean, Gig Harbor High School was built uh, yes. because of population at the time. We're talking 1978, 79, or 79, 80 was the first year Gig Harbor High Schools opened. Right. And my brother was an eighth grader at the high school. So the eighth, ninth, tenth, and eleventh graders attending Gig Harbor High School. Okay. And so his first year, they were eighth graders. The next year, there were ninth graders with no eighth graders. So they were at the bottom of the barrel <laughs> for two years in a row. Yeah. And that class never grew up. I know that because my brother Joe... He attended that year. <laughs> Actually, he's like he's an awesome guy, but he has stories about five years of high school because they were there at the eighth grade. Yeah, didn't they have double shifting at Peninsula? The year before they had double shifting. Okay, yeah. and my, I don't know how many years that went on, but at the time, you know, Peninsula was, was like too big, yeah. and Gig Harbor was just built. The seniors did not want to go to Gig Harbor High School, which makes complete sense. Yeah. And then, uh, and of course, Gig Harbor High School, you know, um, that side of the district grew rapidly for mm -hmm. years. And, you know, I think the, the largest number for Gig Harbor High School was 1,800 kids. Wow. So when I came back to the Gig Harbor area, we had 1,600 kids walking the halls, 200 kids going to Running Start. And then, <sighs> since then, though, the population of kids on the Gig Harbor High School side of the district has plummeted compared to years before. Mm -hmm. And all the growth has been right there on, you know, Peacock uh, Hill area and then Borgen Boulevard where all those houses were punched in with, you know, I think I, I think your wingspan, you might be able to touch the neighbor's <laughs> house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I would have to do like a little bit of a back and forth, but, but they're, we're packed in and, and, I'm not sure what's going to happen, you know, in a, in the years coming because there is another wave of 
of kids coming yeah. where it's going to explode. Yeah. But we'll see. But yeah, so eighth grader, and then and now was Franklin Pierce considered to be a, a very progressive school district with lots of programs, or, or was it, what was it like? Well, you know, when I was a kid in school, I, I thought we were a traditional place with, you know, you took science, you took biology, you took chemistry, you took physics, you math, uh, you know, algebra one, geometry, algebra two, trig, and then you could choose some senior maths and so forth. Uh, English classes were traditionally, figured, you know, I don't think there was anything very, very unusual. Uh, when I came back to teach there, then Washington High School was kind of the uh, was the new high school in the district, and yeah. uh, we 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 did some crazy things there. Uh, one of the things that Washington High School did was get all of the uh, sort of progressive teachers in the district went there and left Franklin Pierce. But one day a week was the each teaching area had had a uh, extra extra time for studying for working things. So what would happen is that uh, you would say to the kids, you would give the kids an assignment, and then they would leave the classroom, most of them, and go supposedly go do it. Uh, and uh, they, they were in their third year of doing that when I, when I got there. And it certainly became evident to me that that was not a very smart thing to do <laughs> because the kids would go wherever and do whatever, and I don't think they learned that but Monday was science and math. Wednesday was English and English, and Friday was social studies. Uh, that wasn't very smart. And then we got this grant from the government to try all, all sorts of things and uh, develop new new courses and that kind of thing. We also had in winterum, which was a lot of fun. Winterum would be the month of January where you would have two classes, three hours in the morning and three hours in the afternoon. So three hours times 20 days gave us 60 hours, which was a Carnegie credit or something like that, something like that way back when. So we had all these uh, courses that we, we developed. I had a, um, one year I had a guitar class, which was not very successful, because <laughs> I didn't have a heck of a lot to teach. And then I had, I had we had glass blowing, and I set up the room with uh, torches all the way around the place, and the kids, I asked, required the kids to do certain assignments with you know, simple glass blowing, scientific glass blowing. And it turned out to be very, very popular that we had room for 24 kids every, every, every morning and afternoon. And uh, I filled it up every year. Oh, wow. And, uh, so did, did that, I mean, that was probably at the time that Chihuly was becoming, like, who was active yeah. as a glass blower at the time. And of course, Chihuly was from Tacoma, attended the uh, Tacoma School District. So obviously, you know, after you um, grew up in Tacoma, attended college, came back and taught in Franklin Pierce School District. And then you came to Peninsula High School in 1983. 82. 82. How many uh, years were you uh, teaching before you came to Peninsula High School? Uh, I started teaching in 1970. So I taught five years at Washington High School, and then I was overseas for three, and then in college for one. So I guess eight or nine years. Ten years, and then, I'm sorry, then I taught two years at Seattle Lutheran High School. So roughly 12, I guess. And then, uh, and then you come to Peninsula. I came to Peninsula. Peninsula was, uh, like any school, over the course of years, it changes dramatically as culture and society changes. 
What was Peninsula High School like when you first arrived in 1982? Well, I think I always thought that Peninsula High School in 1982 was like Franklin Pierce when I came to Washington High School because the same situation had happened. The new school had opened up, and so all of the bright and, and uh, creative folks went to Gig Harbor. As um, teachers, as right? As teachers, yeah. right, and uh, left Peninsula a little bit high and dry. And so there was a little bit of a, a, a resentment towards uh, Gig Harbor at that point, and which was not really founded. Just like uh, there was resentment at Franklin Bears for Washington High School, because it seemed like it got all the attention and, and all the uh, you know new ideas. But I think that uh, Peninsula grew in, in in terms of the personnel and and, and you know had the reputation of being the vocational school because the vocational kids mostly were from, from, from Peninsula. We had an excellent uh, uh, auto shop program, and uh, Gilbert didn't have that. And uh, there, there were some people who thought, yeah, Peninsula was the uh, vocational school in the district. And we, we, we said, wait a second, we've got the same courses that King Harbor's got. We've got good teachers in all these areas. It's not really fair to say that. In terms of, uh, of sports abilities, the two schools were just about even for most of the time. Uh, the fishbowl was an indication of that, that the Peninsula teams Peninsula, you did about equally well with the Gig Harbor. And then, uh, then came the uh, pay-for-play things because the funding had dropped mm-hmm. off. And that made a big difference because uh, Peninsula kids didn't have quite the money, so with the number of kids participating, it dropped off. And so we, we didn't do quite as well as King Harbor did. It was nice to see that recently many districts have made it so the pay-for-play is no longer used because of the discrepancy of who was able to participate and who wasn't. Yeah. And, of course, fundraising for parent booster groups primarily went to pay for that fee so, so kids could participate in athletics. Right. But the need was just, it grew at both high schools, yeah. where where that was uh, problematic. And I, all right, hey, I want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, college life. College life. So you uh, you grew up in Franklin Pierce. You you know before you became a teacher, obviously you had to go to school. So you went to PLU. So what what brought you to PLU? Well, <clears throat> I grew up one block from the campus of PLU or. PLC in those days, and my father taught there for his most of his, his his career, so everything focused on on PLU life. PLU life. We uh, cheered for the PLC teams. We rooted against the CPS UPS teams. When I was, was deciding where to go to college, I was hoping I'd get a big basketball scholarship, but uh, uh, that didn't turn up. And so I I wanted to go someplace where I could play basketball. And PLC or PLU had had an excellent team. They had some, they, most of their games went to the national tournament uh, all the time. And uh, then I also was interested in chemistry, and they'd fired a couple of young chemistry teachers. So I thought, it's got that right combination. And maybe the kind of the final thing was that I could stay at home. And save money. And save money. <laughs> and have a good money. meal. <laughs> I saved money anyway. My folks didn't. <laughs> if I wanted to, I could go over and goof off at the campus, but I could always go home and go to bed when I wanted and eat when I wanted and that kind of stuff. So 
that was a combination. I can uh, you know, convince me to do that. So it's funny to, that at uh, so PLC would be Pacific Lutheran College for right. those who don't know the Tacoma area. It's kind of cool that when you describe a couple of young professors who came into the school. I had a similar experience at Central Washington University where in Ellensburg, it was an older faculty. Mm-hmm. But the year I got there, there was about half a dozen young college professors who made, who made you know, uh, studying chemistry, studying biology and virology really fun. And, but also, you know, they had this, this new uh, labs they wanted to introduce. So we were able to be exposed to, I would say, more up-to-date you know, thinking when it came to science, but also it, it was, uh, there was a relatability that was pretty fun. So you experienced that as a chemistry student, and you love chemistry so much, you decided to go on to graduate school. Yeah. I mean, and, and how did that co- come about, and where did you end up going? Well, I came up to my senior year, and uh, my advisor said, what are you going to do next year, John? I said, oh, I don't know. And he said, how about going to graduate school? And I was, at the time, so dumb that I said, what's graduate school? I had no clue what what went on to that. And uh, he said, well, you study more chemistry. And I said, well, that sounds like fun. So he suggested I apply at Harvard and Columbia and Stanford. And these are three very high-powered schools for all subjects, but chemistry as well. And so I did so, and uh, I got accepted to Columbia. And I thought, okay, that, that, I'll go to Columbia. Because I was in New York City, you know, that, that'd be fun. But then he suggested I apply to the University of Washington as well, just as a backup. And so I did, and I got accepted at the UW right away. So apparently my record was, was uh, attractive enough for them. But when I was reading over the materials from Columbia, I, I think, oh, this looks like fun. And I'd read over the materials from the University of Washington. They were probably about the same thing, but somehow it wasn't very exciting to do that. Plus, the other thing I thought about is if I go to University of Washington, I'll be in the Northwest again still. Mm. And going to Columbia would get me out of the state of Washington, at least for part of my life, see what the other world, the rest of the world is like. So I, uh, I chose Columbia. I was, got a chance to get to see New York City. And that life. So it was a trend, the idea of getting out of Seattle. So Columbia is in Manhattan. And City, yeah. Now, I'm sure, you know, Manhattan has always been one of the most expensive places to live. And so how in the world did you swing it as, at the time, you were, you were a young married couple? Is that correct? Yeah, I was in New York uh, for one year before we got married. Okay. And I, I rented a, had a room in an apartment, room plus bathroom facilities in a room not very far from with a couple with a Russian couple not too far from the campus of University of Columbia and uh, the, the, uh, the they were refugees they escaped from the from the communists and uh, Mr. Korokov was wow. a, a consummate artist he would do uh, still still uh, pictures of fruit and he would go to the store and buy fresh fruit every day so he had the brightest colors. I still remember that being uh, you know, odd when he did that. And it's like also, a little Andy Warhol. <laughs> yeah. And he, uh, he did a painting 
which showed refugees coming, uh, and it was, the painting was small, and as it curved around, it got bigger and bigger, so you can see the people up there, there's a lot of detail about them. But I had him saw that picture, and he had the original in his hanging in there in their uh, living room. And I've seen copies of that in other places. So that was published as a, you know, showing what life was like for the refugees. I believe I've seen that picture. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's like a historic picture yeah. about refugees yeah. in New York. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. They uh, invited me. I, I, I kind of scrounged together food every day, but every once in a while they'd invite me for dinner. <laughs> and the dinner would always start with a glass of vodka. <laughs> and they'd all take a shot of vodka, and then they would start to follow it up with a soft drink or something like that. And I'm not a drinker, and so I, I resisted the uh, involvement. But finally I thought, well, what the heck? If they do it, I can do it. And I soon realized after I shot my, I took my shot glass of vodka straight, uh, that that's why they grabbed the, the soft drink afterwards, because... Oh, boy, did it burn going down. Uh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And we're back. Have you ever been on the Menza website, by the way? No. I, I went on to it just because I'm kind of curious. What do nerds talk about? And I can tell. If you want to know, go on Menza's website. <laughs> really? Yes. So they actually have a... There's a, an annual gathering of men's members in New York every year. It's coming up in a week or two. I think you should go. <laughs> huh. and I don't know what they talk about, but they have categories for little children all the way through people, um, you know, older than you. And, uh, and one thing that they, they're really proud to say, hey, in Menza, we are represented on every continent except Antarctica. And I want to say, dude, there's no country on Antarctica. All but your Menza. You already knew that, but you had to be so smart to tell everyone that there isn't a country represented on Antarctica. <laughs> I'm sure there are people who are members of Menza who work on Antarctica. There's a, there's a bit of a, a elitism of, of the people of Menza, yes. <laughs> I went to a couple of meetings in New York. It's been cool... First of all, I've known you for 27 years or so, mm -hmm. which is really amazing because I think about, uh, as a young teacher, you always know who the, the people who everyone listens to, and you're always one of those people that everyone listened to. And I remember sitting in your seat during lunch, not knowing that that was Doc Mommy's seat. <laughs> and I remember you walked in and you looked down, and, I, and it didn't take much for me to figure out that, oh, this is your seat. And, of course, I moved. It was no big deal. But I remember when you made the comment recently that uh, you can see the sound because Peninsula has a beautiful view of that bay right there by the Purdy Bridge. And, of course, I'm thinking, I remember that view, but I remember where I, where I sat I couldn't see above the windowsill. <laughs> Obviously, it was wasted on you. No, I won't say that. Yeah. Uh, in retrospect, that was that was a very um, egotistical thing to do to push, push somebody out of my seat, and or even consider that I had my seat. 
Uh, I remember at church one time the pastor talked about the fact that uh, the people sit in the same seats all the time. So you, you uh, apparently, apparently UPS, they had a very precise uh, arrangement of arrangement where people sat for dinner and lunch in that case of the, among the faculty. I remember there was a, a very pop, a, a very prominent um, prosecutor investigator, and I'm not going to mention it because it's very political, but the guy happens to be very, very tall. And the kids were tall. The whole family was tall. And... And the people who attended the church with them didn't like them because they always sat in the front row. They couldn't <laughs> see. And I remember thinking as a kid going to the movie theater that some guy sat in front of me and it would always happen. He would sit in front of me and I couldn't see around them. But I, got, I figured it out. This is back in the day where those, uh, the seats would flop down right. and bounce back up. I would sit on the seat as it bounced up. So I can see the screen with just a little bit of that tall guy in front of me. And that's why I was like, okay, I get picked last on the playground. And you decide to sit in front of me in a movie theater. Enough's enough. So I'm going to figure this out. And I figured out that that seat was a perfect, perfect uh, seat to be able to uh, click it up and look over their head. I never had that problem. <laughs> I'm sure. Hey, uh, so I remember when we shared office space. It was my third year of teaching. I was uh, teaching at Peninsula. You were at Peninsula. And we had office space. But during that time, you started noticing things like losing your sense of smell. And I remember you commenting on your shoulder that it felt weak, but it didn't hurt. But it was giving you fits. And, of course, we found out later on that that was early signs of Parkinson's disease that you experienced. Exactly what is Parkinson's disease? Well, Parkinson's disease is a degenerative uh, disease. In other words, you, 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 you keep going downhill, which involves the lack of uh, dopamine, which is a chemical for new transmissions in your body. So it has a lot of different... Um, uh, aspects and it's and it's it's different for different people. Uh, one of the aspects is loss of sense of smell, and that was uh, something that happened to me quite early, quite not early, well, yeah, early in my progress into Parkinson's. Um, I, I my daughter, our, our dog got hit by a skunk one time, and my daughter was holding the dog out in the garage, and she said, "Dad, can you smell that?" And if I put my face right up into the dog's fur, I could, I could get a, a whiff of skunk smell. And my daughter was holding the dog as far away from her as she could because that's how strong it was. And my sense of smell used to be acute enough that if somebody would light a match in my room, anywhere in my room, I could smell it within two seconds. And uh, so that was the first thing. And then, of course, I noticed the, the shoulder thing that I mentioned or that you, you mentioned. And then the other wing is that my, my, I used to, um, when I became uh, union president, I had to go to a lot of meetings and take notes. And after maybe two or three minutes of taking notes, all of a sudden it became hard for me to continue to take notes. It just my, 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 my hand wouldn't function. So that's another uh, mm -hmm. thing that people have problems with, uh, 
small small items. Uh, I, I, I never had much of a tremor, and that's the one that we most think of for Parkinson's is have a tremor. I've never had much of a tremor, but there's some people who do that. Then your balance would be affected, and uh, sense of smell, sense of touch. Uh, yeah, that's uh, yeah, I think, several uh, other uh, aspects. I think one of the uh, things is that uh, you, you forget that you owe your friends uh, $50 for bets you, you placed. Uh, let's see. <laughs> what, what, what friend would that would be? <laughs> Could be, yeah. It starts to yeah. affect, affect people yeah. mentally as well. So, so you're taking medication for Parkinson's. And so exactly what does this medication do and how does it work? Well, two things. Uh, the, the external source of dopamine to replenish that, which my body is not making. But you have to do, be, uh, be careful because the dopamine will not pass the uh, blood-brain barrier. It's all in your head. And so you take medicines which uh, will facilitate that transfer. Okay. And then also you take uh, dopamine agonists, which are materials which... Uh, prolong the life of the dopamine so that it can have an effect in your body longer. And so I've got those, those, those two medicines, the main ones. So dopamine as a neurotransmitter, it's a neurotransmitter. And if I remember correctly, between one nerve to the next, there's a cleft. And neurotransmitters will go into that cleft and allow that nerve, nerve transmission from one nerve to the next. And without the neurotransmitter, it stops right there at the cleft. Yeah. But with the neurotransmitter, this chemical that allows for the propagation of that transfer of, actually, it would be like electricity going from one nerve to the next. So that way, it can go to the end to do the neuromuscular uh, event that you want to take place, whether it is walking or turning your head or grabbing a cup of tea and holding it without that neurotransmitter, you know, we would become frozen in place. Do scientists know why this happens where people experience Parkinson's disease and it's, and suffers the, the effects of it? That's one of the research areas that are uh, supported by different groups, including, uh, the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Michael J. Fox was one of the early uh, people that was affected, famous people that was affected by the disease. And uh, as his foundation has done a tremendous amount of research to try to identify what causes it. Yeah. Uh, some of the guilty parties may well be exposure to chemicals, uh, blows to your head repeatedly, uh, and so some examples of that, of course, are uh, Muhammad Ali yes. developed Parkinson's symptoms from all the punching that he took. And we all saw what that affected him physically and mentally, although his mind still worked. He just couldn't express it very well. Sure. Uh, pesticides were, 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 were you know, and hereditary. Yes. Uh, they always ask me, has anybody in your family got uh, Parkinson's? And the only one that I know about is my mother's sister. So that's somewhat removed, so I don't think it's in my case. But, uh, and, and they talk about exposure to chemicals. When we were in graduate school, we used a lot of chemicals which are not allowed in schools 
nowadays. We use them every day. And uh, but I tell people if it was the chemicals, then everybody that I worked with, all my colleagues should should have Parkinson's as well, because we all use the same chemicals. Uh, that's that's not happened. That's not happened as far as I know. Or, or there'd be a lot of people from Columbia University who had, who studied uh, chemistry probably having Parkinson's disease. Particularly in Fifth Floor Chandler, where where my laboratory was. Yeah, there's a neuroplasticity that the brain possesses. And, and people are finding that when you do things like riding a bike, the exercise portion of boxing, obviously not getting hit in a head or anything, but also Tai Chi, intentional movements where the brain-body connection is enhanced. Have you experienced things like that as far as helping you with uh, addressing the effects of uh, Parkinson's disease? Well... I was diagnosed in 2007, and that's about 15 years later. And uh, there's a couple of people that I knew of from that time that have deteriorated, I guess is the word, more than I have. Mm. Most people say, you've got Parkinson's? Well, we've never known it. Uh, Well, I know it because of the fact that I'm a little bit unstable in my feet. I see them moving, and they're much worse off than I am. So I think it's partly because of my original good health and the fact that I've exercised the things that you mentioned. We had a pedaling class at uh, the YMCA close by. They have a rock steady boxing uh, class at the YMCA. Uh, and I do my own exercises of lifting weights and uh, that type of stuff. Walking, trying to keep as active as possible. It is true, you mentioned neuroplasticity and so... Uh, doing mental uh, activities, uh, starting uh, playing an instrument, singing, uh, all of these things help re-stimulate the uh, nerve uh, interactions, keep you going. The alternative is not very pretty. Uh, my mother-in-law had Parkinson's. She recognized the symptoms when she was in her 50s, mm. but they didn't do anything about it then. But then she took some medication uh, in later years, and uh, she became very emotional. And she was just a dynamo of energy. She cooked, she cleaned, she sewed, uh, all these activities. Uh, and then uh, in her latter years, her latter yeah, months, I guess it was, I saw her sitting in a chair, and she was kind of like a, a shell of a person. She, she didn't speak, she didn't uh, respond very much. Uh, she just sat and looked blankly at the rest of us. And I thought, ooh, when I was diagnosed with Parkinson's, I thought, that was the first picture that popped into my mind. They said, am I going to look like her someday? And I thought, oh, no, I hope not. I'm going to work hard to, to forestall that. Is there a similar uh, similarity of people with Parkinson's and then people who have Alzheimer's? And you see people who are have been mentally stimulated for years as a, as a normal routine. They seem to fight off Alzheimer's better than people who may not be as mentally stimulated. They, they may be stimulated in different ways. And then physically, you're describing, you know, and, and obviously when you look at 10 people with Parkinson's, 10 people with dementia, you can, you'll have 10 different Parkinson's conditions, 10 different people with dementia. It's, it's not a cookie-cutter outcome. Is there research that correlates similarities between how people get Parkinson's and how people get dementia? 
I think the two are not quite... Uh, I love this, though. The recording. <laughs> or grandfather clock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, there's a difference between dementia and Parkinson's, because Parkinson's seems to be in certain areas called the... Uh, uh, Negri, something. Substantia nigra. Yeah, it is Substantia yeah. nigra. You're as well as you're better, more informed about this than I am, and uh, I'm not sure that that's part of the, uh, mm. the uh, dementia business or Alzheimer's yeah. as well. The exercise seems to be make a big difference, and uh, there's a woman at uh, Peninsula High School who has um, what's the other nerve disease? Uh, MS. MS, multiple sclerosis, yeah. and she still looks the same as she did when I first saw her at the school. Uh, so she's been one of the fortunate ones because there's another woman who taught at King Harbor who has MS, and uh, she has deteriorated significantly. I haven't seen her for a while, but... There's a lot of people who, um, as, as people get older, Parkinson's disease becomes more of a reality because age is a contributing factor. What kind of advice do you have for someone they are now dealing with Parkinson's and they just received the diagnosis. I'm thinking about a friend of mine, um, worked with his wife and got to know him, uh, but he's now facing for the, you know, early on, learned that he's got Parkinson's disease. So what do you, what's your advice, your encouragement to him and others who are listening? Well, it's obviously not a very pretty picture of the future, as I mentioned with my mother, my mother-in-law. I guess the, the thing that most people do is they figure out, how can I fight this? And uh, one of the things I did was to get involved with research. Uh, they had a, a, a study program going at the uh, Booth Gardner Institute, which is a junction of the hospital up in uh, north of Seattle. And uh, so I took a, a, a testing drug right away. I wanted to do something to, to fight the disease and to help other people in that thing. So get involved with research, get involved with support groups. Um, I was blessed by the fact that uh, uh, when I went to the YMCA one day, there was a, a person probably my age there who uh, uh, said, I bet he's got Parkinson's. And uh, I saw him a couple of other times, and finally I had a chance to go up and talk to him. And I said, my name is John Mulmean, and I have Parkinson's. And he spent the next 10 minutes telling me about activities in King Harbor, which for Parkinson's people. And, uh, and then he remembered him saying, how did you know that I had Parkinson's? And I said, because you look and move the same way I do. His, his motions and gestures were uh, more subdued than, well, subdued like mine are. Directed a Norwegian chorus for years and years and years, and I have videos of me directing before I was had Parkinson's. And my arms are all over the place. My gestures are quite vigorous. Now when I direct, I'm much more subdued in my physical movement, unless I mentally tell myself to, uh, to fire it up. Uh, so you get involved with Parkinson's groups, and there are several of them. You mentioned the, the boxing group. Uh, we used to have the pedaling class, but that hasn't started up again. And don't get, to, don't get discouraged. You make the best of what you can. And realize that it's different for different people. Yeah. So it affects you, may not affect me, and vice versa. So you can't say that, well, you, uh, you drool. That's one of the things that I've noticed that I have some issues with. And he says, well, I don't drool. He says, but I don't have a sense of smell. And I said, well, I don't either. 
but I can do blah blah blah, and so make the best of what you what you've got, and uh, take your medications. Uh, it's always helpful. Not everyone can say this, but have a sense of humor as much as you can, because if you can't, it could become a really dark path. Years ago, there was a the author of the Saturday Review, Norman Cousins, who apparently had a fatal disease, and he said. Hey, I'm going to take a positive look at it. And so he emphasized humor. He'd look at old movies, Scott and Costello and the Marx Brothers and so forth. And he'd read funny magazines all the time. And he had this humor thing. And he found out that that, that stimulated uh, the antibodies to against whatever his disease was so that he was doing much better physically than anybody else was. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so humor. We're going to take a break. And we're going to come back with family and faith because I think that's a perfect segue. All right, and we are back. You know, faith and family have been a huge aspect of your adult life. But faith is not, has not always been that key cornerstone of your life. Is that true? Yeah. And so uh, what, kind of when was the moment when you recognized where this is important and it's 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 a calling beyond the idea of just doing it because the family does it, the community does it, but I really want to grow in this relationship. Well, two two things. One was um, ironically on a trip with the Choir of the West. Uh, I began to chase after my bride to be, Jean. So this is when you're in college. In college, you're yes. In, you were in a choir program in college, correct? Yes, and we were at a church in Oregon, uh, the Lutheran Church in Eugene, and there was a separate prayer room that they had that had a statue of Christ on the cross. And I went in, and I just felt like I needed to kneel down and pray at that point. And when I did so, I get this, this warm, kind of fuzzy feeling all over as if, Yes, John, this is the right thing to do. I felt felt God's presence at that point. Uh, years later, uh, we attended a, a a presentation by a man from Seattle, uh, Dennis Bennett, who was involved in the charismatic movement of the, of the church. And uh, after that meeting, I felt much more inclined to uh, spiritual things. I used to sing songs, popular songs all the time, uh, I switched to singing uh, Christian songs, uh, popular songs made by uh, things like that. So it felt like the two events together said the, the second event was confirmation of the first one, that I felt God's presence in that little chapel that we stepped to stop that. So when's the last time you told that story about kneeling in front of this cross in this church in Oregon where it was an affirming moment? About your faith. The last time I talked about that, boy, I can't remember. Uh, most people accept the fact that I'm active in the church. Uh, although, when I started teaching, I felt like I should, uh, I didn't have to talk about my faith because it would be obvious in my life that I was a Christian. And a couple of years after I started teaching, I was invited to go to a full gospel businessmen's uh, retreat up in Warren Beach uh, in the Everett area. And a couple of my former students were there. And they said, Dr. Romine, what are you doing here? We did not know you were a Christian. 
Oh my goodness. And you could have stuck a knife in my stomach and made it hurt more than that. I thought, oh my goodness gracious. I guess I sure missed the, missed the boat on that uh, regard. You know, I, I'm going to blame, uh, not, not you, uh, I'm not going to blame them. I'm going to blame culture. Because culture says, you're a science teacher, you're a scientist. You shouldn't be thinking that God exists. I remember when people told me, you're a biology teacher? Like, there's something wrong with it. And like, well, do you teach evolution? Of course I teach the theory of evolution. That doesn't mean I tell people to believe it is a fact. It's an important theory to understand because if you don't understand it, you'll fall for anything. But I do believe that society has put believers in such a box that even if kids see that you are walking in lightness, they're not going to know that because society has fooled them that you are a believer as a scientist, and that's just not acceptable. And some of the some of the best chemists and physicists I know are all believers. Is that something that you found to be true? Well, I remember a couple of kids would say, uh, I feel sorry for you. And I said, why? He says, because how can you be a, a scientist and still be a Christian? You know, there's never a conflict there. And I said, well, in some ways there are, there is because of what people have done with the scientific theories and you know, extrapolating them back to the beginning of life, for example. Uh, I watched, happened to catch part of a program last night on television that was speculating the beginning of life billions of years ago. And I still have a hard time imagining how those things, you know, knowing the complexity of life and the complexity of biological systems, I just don't feel it's possible that it's going to happen by accident. Uh, so. it, it is fascinating when you look at um, the DNA when it replicates, the, the, the systems of identifying errors in the code and then being able to fix it or completely nix it, which is why many, uh, there are, happen to be, uh, and this is, this is going to sound like an irreverent term, and it's not, but in a scientific world, in a biological world, there are, in nature, there are spontaneous abortions due to the fact that the coding did not go correctly and the, and the, um, the fetus is not going to succeed. Mm-hmm. And part of that has to do with the conditions of the, what's happening in the womb, what's happening with the, uh, the, the female organism, but also what's happening with the genetic uh, replication mm-hmm. when those cells early on are, are um, dividing. And every time they're dividing, what's happening with the DNA? It's also you know, uh, making a copy of itself, a perfect copy of itself. And the moment that copy is disrupted, then the organism is not going to succeed. It's amazing when people <laughs> say, I feel sorry for you. And I thought, gosh, if you only knew Sean Mameen, <laughs> back in the day, <laughs> teaching at Peninsula High School, Oh, that's funny. Well, I tried to make sure that I would make reference, for example, that I'd tell about the fact, well, in the sermon yesterday, meeting on a Monday, I'd talk about what happened the day before, some other time, and then I had a Bible I'd put on my desk, and apparently there were some rules about that, but uh, nobody ever questioned my, uh, my right to do that. You, uh, you've been married to Jean, the gal that you uh, had been kind of... Uh, Following like a puppy dog, I'm sure. <laughs> Inquire. 
How many years have you guys been married? We were married in 1965, so this is our 58th year. That is incredible. And nowadays it is, yeah. Yeah, well, what do you think about being married to Jane? What are the biggest life lessons that you have learned? Biggest life lesson? Yeah. One, to be, uh, to be patient, uh, to forgive, and have a good sense of humor. Have a sense of humor? Yeah. Sometimes I think she gets started of my sense of humor because I sometimes push it a little bit too far, but then that comes back to the forgiveness place and, and being patient. You've got, you have three daughters, and they all are unique, amazing, and accomplished you know, women. So how did you raise such three incredibly strong women with very unique personalities for each of them? The, uh, somebody asked me that question before, and I said, well, the only thing I remember doing that I thought maybe was significant was I, <clears throat> we read a lot, mm. and I read to them as well. My, my second daughter, well, my first daughter, Kristen, was just a, a, a special kid. She was so talented, uh, but at an early age, uh, there was a group that was in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we were living at the time, was supporting mothers, supporting each other. And this one mother happened to bring her baby over to our place, and Kristen was on the floor, and she was scooting along at a very tender age. And this other woman said, oh, look at that, she's moving. Ah, because her kid apparently just didn't move at all. Uh, so Kristen was always on the cutting edge of doing activities. Uh, her sister Sarah was was incredibly verbal. Uh, we used to read the book Ferdinand the Bull to her, and I'd read the story to her. And because I got bored, I would leave out a word or two at the end of the sentence, and then I began leaving out significant parts at the end of the sentence. And uh, she was shipped her off to Idaho to uh, stay with her, her Jean's parents while we got ready to go overseas. And my father-in-law had noticed this, this uh, technique of dropping words. And uh, so he did it. And we came back, and I was going to read Ferdinand the Bull with Sarah. And we turned the pages, and she recited the text word for word all the way through the whole book. She wow. had memorized it. And uh, number three, uh, she was a, a different kind of a person. But uh, I remember that she used to do her math by counting on her fingers. And Jean, who was a teacher, said, she can't do that. You know, nobody uses their fingers for math. And I said, hey, if she gets the right answer counting on her fingers, she can count on her fingers until she dies. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, she, because uh, we had, taken, had some classes about different learning styles, and visual, kinesthetic, and uh, auditory, and she was working on her fingers. She ended up getting, I think, one A- minus in college. She had a straight A in high school. And she was accepted in medical school within four days of applying. And, uh, so which medical school did she... She, went to, she ended up at the University of Washington. But she was accepted where before? Uh, she was accepted into the program at... Uh, well, finally, I guess it ended up in Texas. Uh, she started at the University of Washington, and her husband was in the ROTC program. Oh, okay. The Air Force ROTC uh, but then he got to transferred to Texas, to San Antonio, 
And so there's a medical school in San Antonio, and, and so she said, well, I'll apply for a transfer. And they said, oh, it's a waste of your time. We only accept very few people. And out of 300 applicants, she was one of the two that was accepted. So of the 300 who transferred? Who tried, who applied to transfer. Okay, wow. She was one of them. Well, and, good for uh, her. <laughs> I remember that, too. I remember when that was going on. She, uh, when they came to Seattle, he was his job came to Seattle, and she applied for a job at the at the Harborview University of Washington because she was in this um, emergency medicine EMT not EMT yeah so I mean, ER ER physician yeah, yeah. and uh, they were showing her around uh, the various things and she said well you know I think I'd like to uh, come here and I said really <laughs> we've been triggering on how we could make sure that you applied for us and you joined as our faculty <laughs> And the, I think the finest contributors, her husband, tells about that the other ER doctors say that if they had to come to the ER, they wanted her, Lisa, to be the uh, oh, attending physician. That's a cool thing. Yeah. So, as an ER physician, the range of things they have to do from, from trauma to uh, what is the degree involved like in the moment surgery, or does that get handed over to... A, a surgeon who's who has that background. They uh, they assess the patients as they come in and decide what should happen next. Should they be go to, go to surgery, for okay. example, and sometimes what kind of surgery? Uh, they get some very strange things, uh, broken bones. They'll send them off to X-ray to confirm that. Do a lot of you know programming the testing of the things so that they can make sure they find out what's wrong. Yeah. And also to prevent them from coming back and suing them. I guess the good thing is she's never been sued in the ER. I remember asking her one time, do you ever get some some really hard cases? And she said, yes. There was one time where there was a 15-year-old boy who came in with a gunshot wound in his stomach. And uh, we sent him off to, to surgery and found out later that he died from that, you know. Mm-hmm. So you have to get kind of a tough skin in that whole position, whole uh, situation. She didn't want to talk about some of those negative things very much. It was just kind of like, you know, do the best you can, and hopefully it'll come out for the best. So you also have five grandkids. And what are the things that you learned about life through your grandkids? Well, it's interesting that uh, when you go back to the question of uh, beginning of life, when every time I take and hold them as a little baby and I look at their, their bodies... Look at their faces, and they've got eyebrows, they've got eyes, they've got a little nose that's got a couple holes in it. Their mouth is lips as far there and for them. They have a tongue. They're beginning to have teeth. They have an appetite. They cry. And all those things. They're absolutely perfect little critters. I said, "This can't be. God can't do this by accident. There's no way that it could come out as perfect as it does." So that's kind of affirmed my, my, my belief in, in the creation of a man by God. The other is, <laughs> this too shall pass, that they, uh, they may be a pain in the neck at a certain age in terms of their abilities and so forth, but it'll, they'll grow out of it. It's been great to be friends with you for 27 years, and I and, uh, can't wait to see what's going to happen uh, next, but more importantly, I uh, 
looking forward to friends hearing your story, hearing your stories about being a kid and being in college, family, but also your faith, which is incredible. So thank you for this time and and thank you for uh, being on the Andrew Frost podcast. My pleasure. Thank you.